there are events or ideas that come about that, that change the course of history in significant ways. Call it breakthrough or eureka moments or epiphanies. It, things like the invention of the wheel, right? A game changer or, or penicillin, like that absolutely changed the course of history and life or the telescope or electricity or the microprocessor or Mexican food. These things change the world for the better. Uh, and each of these discoveries have created turning points in the way that, that we interact with the world around us for good or for ill. Significant discoveries, inventions, and technologies have changed us in ways that it's hard to even imagine anymore. Like, it's hard to imagine a world without penicillin or without the microprocessor or without electricity. Um, and as you and I have journeyed together through the first nine books, or nine chapters in the book of Acts, we have seen Jesus's life in the Spirit fill the early church. We've seen people transformed like the early disciples and like Saul turning uh, his life completely around. Um, we've seen the crowds of people hear the gospel uh, and respond in faith. And we've seen the good news of Jesus spread slowly but steadily from that center on Pentecost in Jerusalem to Samaria and to Judea and about now it's going to go to the ends of the earth. In fact, this evening we get into chapter 10 and we're going to see that the dam holding back the gospel from reaching the Gentile world, from the non-Jewish world, is going to be broken down. Would you pray with me as we enter into this passage together? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are relentless in pursuing us and pursuing every person we will ever know. That you love your creation, your world and the people in it. And Lord, you long for us to come to know the fullness of your glory, of your reign, and of your love. And we thank you in this story for how you break down cultural barriers and religious barriers uh, to reach people that were at one point thought unreachable. Lord, help us to revel in the fact that technically in this story we would be the unreachable ones, and yet you have reached us. And help us to see those around us with new eyes and with fresh hope that all people are reachable to the Lord. Amen. So I am uh, in Acts chapter 10. If you'd like to follow along in your Bible, that would be wonderful. It is one of those stories that I'm sure you could break it up and preach it in a few different ways, but as the Lord was speaking to me this week, I decided that I'm going to preach this two times so, uh, from two different perspectives. So tonight we're going to get one, and then after Easter, when we come back to this text after the Lent and Easter season, we're, we'll return. So I'm going to read most of this chapter. There's a part where pre Peter preaches a sermon. I'm not going to hit all of that part because you might be nodding off, and that's going to come in that second sermon. But here's how this begins. Now there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what has been called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. Now about the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius, and fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, what is it, Lord? 
And he said to him, your prayers and alms have been, have ascended and as a memorial to God. Now, dispatch some of your men to Joppa and also uh, to this man named Simon, who is also called Peter. Now, he's staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. Well, when the angel who was speaking to him had left, he summoned two of his sermons, uh, servants and a devout soldier of those who were his personal attendants. And after he had explained everything to them, he sent them on to Joppa. On the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. But he became hungry and was desiring to eat. And while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance, and he saw the sky opened up, and an object like a great sheet coming down out of heaven, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. And a voice called to him, saying, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. And again, a voice came a second time. What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and immediately the object was taken back up into the sky or into the heavens. Now, while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what this vision meant, which he had seen, what it might be, behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate. And calling out, they were asking whether Simon, who was also called Peter, was staying there. And while Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Get up, go downstairs, and accompany them without any discrimination or without misgivings, as it says. For I have sent them myself. So Peter went down to the men and said, Behold, I'm the one you're looking for. What is the reason for which you have come? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by the holy angel to send for you, to come to his house, and to hear a message from you. So he invited the men and gave them food and lodging. And on the next day, he got up and went away with them. And some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. On the following day, he entered Caesarea. Now, Cornelius was waiting for him and, and called them together. And he called together his relatives and his close friends. And when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshiped or paid homage to Peter. But Peter said, uh, s- raised him up saying, stand up, I too am just a human. As he talked with him, he entered and found many people assembled. And he said to them, you yourselves know it is unlawful or taboo for me to enter into the house of a Gentile. I'm a Jew. You know I'm not supposed to be doing this in the house of a foreigner. God has shown me, however, that I should not call any person unholy or unclean. And that's why I came without ever raising any objection when I was sent for. So I ask, for what reason have you sent for me? And then I'm just going to summarize. Cornelius tells him all about that vision that he had and how God sent to send him. And so he says, here I am, and this is Peter seeing the convergence. At the same time, these guys are praying. God is speaking to them. Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. 
but in every nation, the person who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. Okay. Now, Peter's going to go on to preach about Jesus, and he's preaching, and he's preaching, and he's preaching, and then it says, while Peter was still speaking, I'm sure he had a great sermon, I know all about, like, he's got a great sermon, and he's preaching, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon those who were listening to the message. And all the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus the Christ And they asked him to stay on for a few days to teach them more. What an amazing story. What an amazing story. Truly a pivotal moment in the history of the world. After this story, Peter is going to, in fact, I'm not even going to preach chapter 11 because it's basically this story again. Like Peter just says all this stuff to the apostles in Jerusalem. He says, you'll never guess what happened. We have to let the gospel go out to the Gentiles because they've received the Spirit just like us. And after those floodgates are broken open, the proverbial baton will be passed from Peter to Paul. Much of the rest of Acts will be Paul now going out to the known world. And Paul will end up in Rome with an audience of the most powerful human person on the earth at that time, and the gospel will spread. And you and I are here in the 21st century reading <laughs> the, uh, the Bible in our own language, listening to the gospel of Jesus because of this moment. Even us get to hear the gospel and come to Jesus. In this story, we see that God is the main actor, don't we? He's the one who initiated these visions with both of these men who were stuck in their ways before this. He initiates everything. And then the sub-characters are Peter and Cornelius, a Roman centurion and a Jewish, now Christian, fisherman. And I believe that this story tells us the tale of two conversions. We have the conversion of a fisherman and the conversion of a Roman. And so what I'm gonna do is preach twice Today you're going to get the, the sermon, uh, the conversion of a fisherman, and after Easter we'll come back to this text and we'll do the conversion of a Roman. But before we go much further, you might be thinking, wait a minute, I know a little bit about the Bible, and I know that Peter doesn't get converted in this story, right? Peter was a disciple of Jesus, he was with them three years. Uh, Peter denied Jesus, and then when Jesus was resurrected, Peter gets converted again around a charcoal fire where he's restored by Jesus. Peter, you could say, was converted in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit fell upon him and the other apostles, and he begins to be filled with this mission of God. Peter proclaims the gospel to people, and they respond in faith, and they receive the Holy Spirit. So what are you talking about Peter being converted Well, usually we think of conversion involving a change of mind or a change of allegiance toward Jesus, and and that is absolutely true. But when we follow Jesus throughout a lifetime, we come to see that he is always converting us, isn't he? That the, the job is never really all the way done. Converting us, for example, from selfishness to more and more generosity, right? Uh, Converting us from fear 
to more boldness in our life, converting us from lies we believe about the world toward seeing the world through the perspective of Jesus' eyes. And I think one of the hardest lifelong conversions isn't necessarily mental or theological, it's relational. One of the hardest conversions for us is how we relate to other people. I think that following Jesus necessarily involves seeking peace and reconciliation and keep, uh, seeking common ground with people for the sake of the gospel. That's part of the gig as a disciple of Jesus. Now, most of us have people, I hope, that we're comfortable with. People we find easy to interact with. People that are easy to understand. Usually are maybe uh, friends with them or married to them or in church with them or hang out with them, right? We have groups of people that we're comfortable with. But if we're honest, there are plenty of people who we simply don't take the time to understand. Other times we might find that we hold active prejudice or suspicion or even hatred towards certain individual people or certain types of people. There are many reasons for these relational divides, and I'm not a sociologist or a psychologist or anything, but I think that the two uh, primary reasons for our disagreements with people or our misunderstandings are ignorance and trauma. Ignorance and trauma. With ignorance, we simply don't know much about a real person or a real group of people. Did you know in our little hamlet of Bellingham, so liberal and open and loving. Did you know that in our town, the Sikh community was horribly discriminated against and treated with violence and racist abuse? In 1904, in this neighborhood and surrounding neighborhoods of the downtown core, over 400 white men fell upon the Sikh community, vandalizing homes, physically abusing and intimidating men and women and children, And on that night, 125 Sikhs were cast out of town and they migrated up to B.C. Why? When you read the reports, people were writing in the newspaper that they're Hindus, as if that was reason enough to to do that to anybody. People spread crazy rumors that they were into the occult or the ancient mystic Eastern arts. All kinds of crazy false rumors spread, and the ignorance became truth for people who didn't really know any Sikh people. I read it in the paper. It must be true. You know, today we often get our information about entire cultures through very biased sources, like media. Our main source of information about Muslims might be movies where they're always portrayed as terrorists. But most of us who actually know real Muslim people know that saying all Muslims are terrorists is like saying all Americans have concealed weapons permits and eat hamburgers for breakfast. That's not a bad thing to have for breakfast once in a while, but I'm just saying it's a stereotype, right? It's lumping all people into a group. We hear the word Russian, for example, we think Putin, or we think election tampering, or we think Chernobyl, which is even in Ukraine, because we're bad at geography, we think it's Russia. But... (laughs) Anyway, but, but if you get, really get to know some real Russian people, you find that most of them are just like you and me, like people who are trying to figure out how to do life in the ups and downs of relationships and beauty and sadness and joy and hopes and fears. Ignorance separates us, whether it's simply not knowing or if it's from one-sided information from a media source 
or a lot of times it's from our families who perpetuate stereotypes and racist ideals and false ideas. You know, Peter would have lived among fellow Jews who had some assumptions about Gentile people. They're all polytheistic pagans, morally suspect and under God's judgment, damn it. I don't know if they talk like that. In Hebrew. Raka. That's the ignorant stereotype, right? They all must be like this because I knew this one thing or I I have this story about people. But what the reader knows, the reader of the Bible knows, is that, you know, like in Genesis, for example, in the Abraham story, it's a pagan king who is more righteous than Abraham who lies about Sarah being his sister and almost messing up the entire plan of God. It's Rahab, the, pre- the pagan prostitute who shows herself trustworthy. It's a Roman soldier witnessing the crucifixion who first declares, surely this is the son of God. It's the Ethiopian eunuch and the Samaritans in the, in the book of Acts who respond with faithfulness to the gospel. But stereotypes are really hard to break, aren't they? Another factor in relational divides is trauma. Hurt people learn to fear those who are like those who hurt them, right? Hurt people learn to fear those or to hate those who are like those who hurt them. So I'll I'll use a stupid example. Uh, Corey took our new puppy to the dog park, uh, six months old now, and we're trying to socialize her, and there was another dog like our dog, a Labradoodle, right? And uh, so our dog just wants to play, goes over to the Labradoodle, and the Labradoodle kind of snips at our dog. What's up? And the guy who is with the dog says, you know, my dog got bit, got attacked uh, by another dog when she was like two, you know, two months old. And she just doesn't do well with other dogs now. So this dog, an instinct, has just lumped all other dogs as probably going to bite me, I'm going to bite you first kind of thing. And, and I think that's, that's, you know, studies have shown that that's kind of an animal instinct. Like, we're tribal people. We think we're all cosmopolitan, but we have these deep-rooted tribal instincts. We, we already size people up. Like, that person's like me, they're probably going to think like me. That person looks different than me, they're probably going to be a threat. You know, so we have these threat levels that we can't even cognitively get through. I knew an ER nurse in the inner city in the Bay Area who was consistently bitten, punched, lied to, groped, cursed at by drug addicts who would come off the street crashing, and they would come in. Some of them had done violent crimes, so they'd be chained to the thing, and it was hard for this nurse that I knew to not lump all people who are using or all people who are on the street or all people who have a certain look as being suspect and probably violent and probably nasty. Well, we get involved with Lighthouse Mission, like I mentioned earlier, and we realize people have a story, and there's a human being there, and there's something, someone to be redeemed there, and there's someone who just is one step away from uh, a fullness of life, you know? And so these, these traumas force us to think ill about other people. And I could go on and on. I know a retired police officer who really struggles with certain groups of people because of his experience. And the point is, for our story, is that the Jewish people were crushed, they were oppressed, they were overtaxed, they had their land literally occupied by the Roman Empire. 
Roman soldiers could and often did confiscate people's property, beat civilians for the fun of it, harm women, desecrate sacred Jewish religious sites, and just humiliate people because they could. You give a 19-year-old kid a superiority complex and a weapon and a group of other 19-year-old kids, you're going to have trouble. To be Jewish or Christian in the Roman world like Peter was would have been extremely difficult. The idea of Peter or someone he knows to not have experienced Roman trauma by, by the middle age that he was in, highly unlikely. Right? I mean, it's highly likely that he had experienced that. It would have been hard for Peter and people like Peter not to despise Romans, especially high-ranking Romans like Cornelius. Do you feel that, what that would have been like? You know, it's fascinating and probably no accident that this scene takes place in a town called Joppa. Can you think of another story where there's a stop in Joppa? The book of Jonah. God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh to warn them that they would be destroyed if they didn't repent of their own sin toward other people, if they didn't turn and come toward God. Now, Jonah hated the Ninevites, because they consistently murdered and oppressed his people. He didn't want to obey God because, and he even says this in the book of Jonah, I know you to be gracious and compassionate. And if I go to the Ninevites with this good news about who you really are, they're probably going to repent and come to you. And I don't really want them to be saved. I hate the Ninevites. And so Jonah goes to Joppa to find a ship out of town. And we know how that happens, how that turns out. Now we see Peter and Joppa. How will he respond? Peter has some converting to do if he's going to be God's agent in the world. Did you know that Jesus wants you to be God's agent in the world? Turn to your neighbor and say, Jesus wants you to be his agent in the world. Did you know that you are a vital part of God's plan to spread his love and truth and blessing in our community? That's a mouthful. I'm not going to have you say that. But you are, and so am I. Did you know that Jesus wants to heal us from our prejudices and our fears? He wants to heal us from our hatred and make us whole. And the more whole you are and the more more whole I am, the more free we are to reach outside of our comfort zones, outside of our own group, so that we can be agents of Jesus for his glory and our neighbor's blessing. That's the goal. Now, maybe you know that you have some unfair opinions about other people. Maybe you're conscious of your own prejudice against people of, because of their culture, or their politics, that's a big one, or their sexuality, or their nationality. Maybe you know that you have some of those prejudices. Maybe you don't know, but you probably do. But if you want to honestly hear what Jesus has to say about it, I think this passage has the place that we can start. And it is something that we consistently come back to, and there's gotta be a reason for that. I think prayer and scripture are the two places we see these guys start. And I would say that that's applicable for all of us. See, when God decides to break down the wall between the gospel of 
you know, this Jewish gospel and the Gentiles, he chooses it to do it through two people who are praying. The Roman centurion is praying, and Peter is praying. That's no accident. This shouldn't surprise us anyway. Jesus is in prayer when he chooses the 12 disciples, right? Jesus prays when he's about to go to the cross. The disciples were gathered for prayer and reading the scriptures together when the Holy Spirit descended on them at Pentecost. Ananias was praying and he gets a vision to meet Saul in Damascus. Yes, God can, pre, uh, can, can reach us through burning bushes and Damascus Road experiences, but most often he speaks through the usual avenues of prayer in scripture. And I, I say scripture because that is how we see the Ethiopian eunuch come to conversion, he's reading the scripture. But we also know that Cornelius, for example, we're not just praying like, like it's very kind of last 150 years that, that people, when I say prayer, you probably think extemporaneous praying. Like, Lord Jesus, I feel this way today, or bless this person in my life. And those are great prayers. I love the feely prayers. I love the personal prayers. But you have to realize that most people didn't pray that way that most people when they pray, especially Cornelius who prays at the set time, Cornelius prays at the ninth hour, you know what that is? That's a set hour of Jewish prayer in the temple. He's praying that because he's knowing that other people are praying at the same time, and he's praying the prayers that they're praying, which are certain psalms for the day, probably the Shema, and some other things like rote prayers, okay? So he's praying the scriptures, and when Peter's praying, he's likely praying the scriptures, The point here is twofold. First, if you are serious about following Jesus, prayer is the language of disciples. Prayer is the language of people who follow Jesus. It is the way we put our, ourselves in the path of God's voice. Of all days, this is Transfiguration Sunday, right? We should recall the words that Peter and James and John heard from God on the mountaintop when Jesus was transfigured before them. This is my son, my chosen one. What does he say? Listen to him. How are you listening to him? It's not a shaming question. But if you're like, I don't The answer, prayer. Pray. That is the number one way that we're able to listen to him. Prayer and scripture. So what is it that Jesus, oh, sorry, sorry. So that was the first thing. The second um, is that the changes of perspective for Peter and Cornelius are from God. This is important. So these men don't change their views about each other because of cultural pressures. They don't change their beliefs or their, based on feelings or personal opinions. They don't change their theology or what they believe to be right because of popular majorities or vocal minorities. They are informed by God and that is important because it gives them both the power to change and the authority to know that their change is pleasing to Jesus. Okay, so what is it that Peter needs to get converted from? What is it we see Jesus doing in him? So he's on a rooftop praying, right? He's hungry, and he is waiting for his midday meal to be prepared, presumably by his host family, Simon the Tanner's family. And all of a sudden, he sees a vision of a sheet or a sail. Uh, it's confusing what this thing is. It's 
a cloth coming down from heaven, and it's full of all kinds of animals. It's full of kosher animals, the things that Jewish people could eat, Uh, and then it's full of creepy crawly animals, probably reptiles and other things that Jewish people were not supposed to eat. And when he gets grossed out by this vision, a voice from heaven says, Peter, get up and kill and eat. That word for kill, by the way, in Greek is the same word for sacrifice. Get up and sacrifice and eat. Peter says in so many words, no way, I have never done this. I've never broken kosher. I've never eaten anything unclean. I'm a man of God. And Peter, you know, he's not being disobedient. He's just trying to follow the actual law of God. His whole life he's followed these laws. And as a Jew, he would have heard stories about how before the Romans, the Greeks conquered uh, Israel. And, and, and Antiochus Epiphanes and some of his cronies used to force people to eat pork and non-kosher food or die. And some people actually were martyred because they refused to break the law of God for these Greek heathens. So Peter's doing what he thinks God wants him to do. It's in the Bible. But here's the thing. These food laws were put into effect not because some foods or animals are inherently clean and some are unclean. Like, just logically go through that in your mind for a minute. God creates the animal kingdom, and he's like, I kind of like, these are my favorites. And I created these and, like, thought up their DNA and everything, and I'm perfect, but I don't like them. Like, they're bad animals and they're good animals. I mean, this doesn't make any sense. Plus, pork is really good, so what is going on? The whole thing with the food laws is that food isn't just food. Animals aren't just animals. These are things that people share with each other. They're fellowship pieces. They are what bring people together around tables. And certain foods in the ancient world, when these laws were made, were the main course of pagan sacrifices. Did you know in archaeological digs, for example, that the number one animal bone found in pagan shrines of the ancient Near East are pig bones? So why do you think it is that God didn't want people eating pork? It wasn't because pork is bad or pigs are bad. It's because it's associated with idol worship. Jesus changes all that. Jesus fulfills Israel's role in being the light to the nations and being the suffering servant who would atone for the sins of the world. And because of Jesus, we are now living in a new paradigm. N.T. Wright uses the illustration of a parent with a small child who's about to cross the street. A car is coming, and so the parent says, you shall not cross the street. Once the traffic goes through and the coast is clear, the parent says, go ahead, cross the street, go to the other side. Now, that parent is not being mean. That parent is not being petty. The, The rules are not arbitrary, but that parent is also not being inconsistent, right? Because they see the big picture, Peter learns that what God declares clean should not be called unholy any longer. And pretty soon, Peter's going to learn what that means. It has very little to do with food and everything to do with who he will associate with. Peter will go and learn that if the Gentiles respond to the gospel of Jesus, if the Gentiles will receive the Holy Spirit, then yes, Gentiles should be allowed to receive baptism and to be part of the church. And they don't have to become Jewish first. It's not a matter of what we wish was clean and unclean, by the way. It's not like our job to declare what is sinful and what is not sinful. 
The passage is not saying that differences don't matter anymore. It isn't saying that idol worship or oppressive regimes or sexual immorality or emperor worship or paganism, the passage isn't saying that those things don't matter. It is saying that we should never count people out. We should never say that that country could never produce someone who could become a brother or sister in Christ. Or that that person who comes from a different culture or a different religion could never be someone Jesus could reach out to. Or that person who votes for that candidate or that party or along that ideology, they must be too far gone for Jesus, let alone worth my time and hospitality. That's something we don't get to say. Now here's a fascinating detail in the text. In verse 28, Peter says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a person who's a Jew to associate with a foreigner, let alone visit him. Okay, that's what Peter says in verse 28. Now check this out. John Stott, the late and great one, pointed out that the word for unlawful in Greek in this passage is actually a word that more means taboo or contrary to custom. So let me say it again. You yourselves know how contrary to my customs it is for a person who's a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit with him. In other words, this Jew-Gentile separation seems to be more of a cultural taboo than it was a hard and fast law. Now here's an interesting thing. Where is Peter staying in the story? He's in Joppa, and whose house? Simon the who? Simon the Tanner. Simon the Tanner is a Jewish guy, but as a tanner, that is someone who works every day of their life with dead animals because it's like, you know, making the hides, you take the carcass, you take the skin off, you work it, right? That is someone who is perpetually, ceremonially unclean. They would have to stop their work for the right amount of days before they could participate in the Jewish festivals and things like that. So, so Peter is staying under the house with a tanner, by the way, it's on the edge of town because they stunk so bad uh, that they, they were forced to the edge of town, so they are like physically unclean, they stink, and ceremonially unclean. But somehow, Peter looks past that taboo of staying with Simon the tanner, a Jew, and yet he sees that staying with a Gentile is somehow strictly taboo. Isn't that interesting? Don't we all pick and choose what sins we feel like making a big deal out of while overlooking equally ungodly behaviors because they're more or less socially acceptable? Isn't it interesting how we associate freely with some people who we know sin in socially acceptable ways? Greed, selfishness, anger issues, running over people. Ah, it's just a character flaw. Oh, it's just a little thing. It's absolutely contrary to the way of the Spirit, isn't it? Well, we make moral stands against other forms of sinners because of the cultural norms or cultural cues that we're comfortable or uncomfortable with. The text is saying something to us here. Let's be really careful not to play favorites. Be really careful. Sin is sin. And this is not, li- this is not saying like, turn a blind eye to every sin. If anything, it's saying like be equally discriminating, right? Sin is sin. We should never turn a blind eye because the culture says certain sins are okay while others aren't okay. And at the same time, we should never, I'll say it again, 
We should never count people out. Look at yourself just an instant and be reminded that Jesus is in the business of calling sinners to himself. Amen? Amen. Yeah, I'm one. This passage teaches us that it is faith in Jesus that saves. It is obedience and devotion to Jesus that makes us a part of this family. Our nationality, our prior moral record, it can't gain us access to the family of God, and it can't restrict our access to the family of God. It's Jesus who makes us clean, who declares forgiveness. It's Jesus who justifies. Who else then is qualified to condemn, right? And so this is double good news for us. First is good news in that there is forgiveness for you and there's forgiveness for me. Maybe you've got one of those tapes going on in your own head that what you've done or the place you're at isn't reachable by Jesus. And I want to say this story just turns that on its head. I mean, when you think what the Roman people did to the Jewish people of that time period, And then this centurion who represents the epitome of power and brutal force, he commands a century of soldiers in occupying this town that Peter, you know, this land. And God is saying, you know what? They're not all bad. And this one is seeking me. And this man is faithful. And I want you to go share the good news with him. And I want you to break down these walls. And, And so this is good news for you. This is good news for me. A, and just like receiving, like I'm not too far gone and you're not too far gone. We can turn to him. The second thing is, is that he can break down our stereotypes toward other people. You know, sometimes I think that people in the church think that they're actually being faithful to God by holding certain groups of people at arm's length. And I want to say that that's backwards. You do not have to agree with someone's life or their choices to love them. Showing someone hospitality does not mean that you agree with every single thing that they do or every single thing that they think or they might have the weirdest theology or ideas about spiritual things. That doesn't rub off on you. You're not going to catch something. The only way they're going to know the love of Jesus is probably through you, his agent in the world. Be free be free. This passage frees us to love people. It's okay. And then the other piece of the good news is it's for, uh, for others. Like I just said, it frees us to show hospitality and kindness and prayer and friendship to the people in our lives. Lord, thank you for this good word. Thank you for initiating this breakthrough, both for Peter and for Cornelius Thank you for in the story that has two men um, as movers and shakers. It's really you who is doing the moving and the shaking. Thank you that in this story we see your heart toward people, that we come to see yet again that you're a God who pursues and loves, who is a God who breaks down walls, not builds them, that you're a God who pursues us. And so, so Lord, I pray for, for those here who are struggling um, with believing that you could be for them. Would you break down that wall and help us to turn to you in faith? Amen.